Please be seated. I invite you once again to open your Bibles if you have them with you or grab one from the pew rack in front of you uh, to John chapter 11. If you are new with us or have only been with us for a short time, our, what we, our regular practice here is to work through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse, known as consecutive and expository. Expository is a big fancy word that just means expose what the writer wrote. Um, uh, but that's our method so that God would speak to us and we do a verse by verse because uh, basically we could be cowards and there's things that are difficult and unpleasant and would be real easy to skip over but you would notice, uh, so we do it anyway, and pray that God would speak through us nevertheless. Uh, this morning, we come to the end of chapter 11. We have seen for the past couple of weeks, looked at uh, the different dimensions of uh, what God was teaching us through uh, the, the death of Lazarus, and then Jesus raising him again. And now we come to uh, the days afterwards, uh, kind of John wrapping up a, a summary and giving us a picture into the reactions that people around Jerusalem had to Jesus himself and particularly to this recent miracle that he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. We begin our reading in verse 45, continuing through verse 57 this morning. And so hear the word of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he'll come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The word of our God. May he speak to us. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, as we come to this, your word, we do pray that you would not leave us to our own uh, intellect or even discipline, but that you, by your spirit, would speak to us, that you would illumine the truth uh, that you would have us to understand uh, that is recorded and written by John, uh, that we would not only have understanding in our minds, but that that would also fuel our hearts 
For in this may we see your greatness and that our hope that is found in you has also been promised by you in Christ. May we therefore see not only what you are doing, but see the beauty and majesty of Jesus. We pray this for your glory, but also for the joy of all who are called by the name of Christ. Amen. We see here in, in these verses as if they are written in just very large letters so that we, we can't miss it. The mystery of unbelief against the majesty of God's grace. What's interesting is that no one in Jerusalem doubted that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Everyone recognized that Jesus had been doing amazing, astounding things, and this was the most recent. Uh, this was, perhaps, uh, to many, uh, the, the, the most amazing, but nobody denied it. In fact, we see that even from texts that were out, from outside the Bible, ancient texts that we still have to this day that, that speak of Jesus, uh, tell us that Jesus was universal, or they universally tell us that Jesus was recognized as a, as a miracle worker. And these are texts that are not written by believers only, uh, but sometimes these are texts that have been written by those that were hostile to this Christian movement and to Christ himself. And yet, each of them testifies to the fact that the universal belief of those who knew who Jesus was is that in that day, he was believed to be a miracle worker. There, there was no denying that Jesus was extraordinary. The problem that the people had that in, in their unbelief was rooted not in what Jesus had done, but rooted in the claims that Jesus had made about himself. And they, they recognized that if they embraced these claims, or as we see even more vividly in our text, if Jesus' claims about himself became widely believed, life as they knew it would be significantly changed. Their life would be disrupted. And we see that in, in the conversation because we're told some of the people had, had witnessed the resurrection, the, the resuscitation or the, the rising of Lazarus, uh, went to the leaders and the chief uh, teachers. And as they came together, we get to peek into the conversation. And so they asked each other, what are we going to do? If we let this guy keep doing this, and everybody's going to believe, and if everybody believes, and then their fear was that there would be such a movement that the Romans, under whose authority they were, uh, they, that they, they lived, would come in and kind of squash everything, that they would take away the privilege, the prestige, and the position that some of these people were enjoying. They weren't really in control of their whole lives in, in the big picture of things because they were under Roman authority. But in the day-to-day -day lives, as long as the government left them alone to do whatever that they wanted to do, they thought that they had carved out for themselves a pretty cushy life. And they were afraid that not only Jesus, but people believing in Jesus were, would rob them of their present lifestyle, the present condition, the present privilege. And that's that concerned them. And so what we see here is the problem is, is not with Jesus in terms of what he was doing so much as the implications that who he was 
carried with them. And so as they were grumbling about this, we, we see in the text one of their leaders, Caiaphas, who was the high priest. The text says that high priest that year. Now, it wasn't that he you know, had to be reelected every year. I think that there's a literary technique here that is bringing a contrast to Caiaphas, who was the high priest, who, who was the high priest for, for several years, according to history. Uh, but it, it, John is bringing attention both to the fact that he was the high priest for that year, not only for this incident, but soon to be the high priest over the, the trial, the kangaroo court trial that Jesus endured, and therefore was responsible for the death, which was his plan to begin with. And focusing on that year, it kind of says it's a temporary job when he, Caiaphas, has this temporary job and he's bringing judgment on Jesus the high priest for all eternity. But we see what Caiaphas says, and it's really kind of interesting if you think about it, because what Caiaphas is saying here, um, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all. In other words, he's saying, look, you're a bunch of dimwits. You don't know anything and you don't understand anything. And here's what you need to understand. And he speaks. Here's his plot and the rationale for his plot. It's better that this one man die than the whole nation be eradicated. In other words, it's better that we kill off this one guy than bring attention to ourselves of the Romans and the Romans coming and taking away all the privilege and the life as we know it. And so there was his plot and it's revealed as to the reason why. But the amazing thing here is, is John, right after that verse, interjects. And so he gives some commentary so that we have perspective as to what is going on here. While Caiaphas meant to eradicate Jesus to get him out of their hair so that they could continue uh, with their position, John tells us that God was at work. And even though it wasn't intended to be this, that Caiaphas actually prophesied. He prophesied what would actually happen And in prophesying what was going to happen, he declares the gospel, which is very clearly this. It's better that one man die than that everybody die. His motive was wrong. His words were powerful. And God here is at work in demonstrating that he's in control of all things. Because even when somebody was plotting to do evil, that plot... And the articulation of it is exactly what God had designed from the beginning that he would send one who would die in the place, take upon himself so that others would be able to live and to live free. But people wouldn't believe it. Their unbelief was not so much a failure to recognize the amazing things that Jesus had done. It was a refusal to accept the astonishing things that he claimed about himself. They refused to believe because it would disrupt them, disrupt life. And when I think about that, and I was thinking about that this week, I, I asked myself, I wonder how much things have really changed. I mean, we live in a time in history that is widely considered to be post-Christian, ushered in by a philosophy of post-modernism, post-truth. And yet, despite those post-things, we live at a time where there are tremendous evidences that continue to beg for belief. I mean, in one sense, we live at a time that has experienced or we're on a significant 
and, and really incredible scientific breakthroughs. And in some cases, people think that the scientific breakthroughs therefore mitigate against the claims of God. But fundamentally speaking, some of the breakthroughs without question testify to us that we absolutely need to believe in God. I mean, think about it this way. We know that whether we are looking through a telescope at distant stars or through a microscope at things that would be unseen by the naked eye, that there is incredible complexity in our world and in our universe. And yet because we are able to see that which is unseen by the naked eye, we also recognize in the midst of that complexity that was unknown in ancient generations, there is also an incredible organization, an incredible unity that is present. There's, there's great order in this world that leaves many scientists, whether they have a clear professed belief or not, declaring that this world is not by chance. There, there must be something that, or someone that has created it. Perhaps most notable about, uh, of, among them is a physicist um, from the 20th century named Fred, Sir Fred Hoyle, an English physicist, who is often cited or quoted because of this statement that he made. He said this, the likelihood of our universe becoming like it is by sheer chance is the same probability of a tornado blowing through a junkyard and leaving behind a 747 from all of the parts. And while that statement isn't universally embraced by all scientists, it, it, many do. They may not have, have come to the position where they would claim faith and have the answer. They recognize that there is an incredible order in the midst of complexity that if they do not accept faith, there, there really is no answer. In fact, it takes incredible faith to believe some of the other hypotheses. We also live at a time that is like the past. And this is that we see in the hearts of people everywhere, no matter where they were from, no matter what culture they were brought up in, that they have a, a longing for God or a longing for some God, gods. That people everywhere have this desire, this instinct to, to worship because they know there's something beyond this, that there is something that we need to be relating to. And along with that, we see through peoples of every nation a moral imperative that comes from within. And though in some ways is, is different from culture to culture, at the root, it's absolutely amazing how similar the instinctive values and instinctive morality people have. Almost every culture recognizes that killing people is not a good idea. Almost every culture frowns on taking things from others, stealing from them. There's this, this moral impulse that is instinctive and then it's expressed in, in many ways through every culture. And while there are differences that are appropriate for us to study, the things that are similar are also begging for our attention and asking why. And they testify to the fact that we are created by a God to have relationship with him.
On top of that, we also have 2,000 years of testimony since the resurrection of Christ. 2,000 years of people testifying how their lives have been changed by the gospel. And those stories continue in every place around the world. And yet even with all of this, while we are excited that many do believe, we see that many won't believe or they don't believe. And we ask the question, why? You know, the answers to that question are many, but I, I suspect in looking at this, one of the things we need to factor in is because while we know there's something else is out there, we tend to be the center of our own universe, and we don't want to, we're not predisposed to embrace anything that is going to upset life as we know it or desire it. We, we just don't want to be disrupted. I think as we look at this passage, that's the thing that is screaming at us. It's the overarching narrative here uh, of, of this passage, if, if we're going to look at it. But one of the things that we need to see as well, I, I think, as, as we look at this passage, is that while not quite as evident, nevertheless still present, is that there is, through this passage, we are able to see into another dimension. It's like a window into seeing uh, another dimension of truth that God is speaking to us through John and through Caiaphas. And it, it's rooted in, in this whole statement that Caiaphas makes that it's better that one man die so that the whole can live. And John's explanation of that, that God was at work through Caiaphas to make this declaration as he was working out his purpose and bringing those people, gathering them together, is what John says, into Christ. In other words, he's speaking of what is known as our union with Christ. And, and if we look at this passage in that way, this passage is, is kind of like a window. And sometimes we can look at the windows and just look at the windows, or we can look through the windows. And I was thinking this week about... Uh, different places, different times. And, and I was, remember back as a child uh, going to the Franklin Mint as uh, a field trip with my, uh, my classmates. And so we would go into town, into Philadelphia, and we'd go to the Mint, and you walk along. And, but there was this window that you were able to see as they were producing all the money that would soon go into circulation. Or at the time, another time as a child, that you would be able to go to Hershey, and I understand you can't do this anymore, but you would walk through the factory and through a window, you would watch them producing what was, as a kid, far more important than all that money, um, Hershey's Kisses and the chocolate bars. And, and you could see through that. And so you can look at the window, or you can look through the window, and you can see mechanics of something that is being produced. And, and in this text, I would suggest to you that we not only see the, the big window, which is the picture of unbelief and belief and, and the questions uh, there, but looking through Caiaphas and John and what they are speaking and what God is speaking about our union with Christ, we see some very important truths that are not just truths theologically, but they are of practical importance to us as well. And we may not see them as clearly because in the Gospels, and it's fairly common, the Gospels talk about the narrative and the story, but we also have the benefit of seeing through the eyes of the writers that wrote the epistles later. In particular, this morning, I, I, I borrowed from the Apostle Paul what he's writing in the book of Romans. Because he's explaining in the book of Romans the implications of what John is referring to, that God, through Jesus' death, was gathering people from everywhere into one, into Christ and into one body that is his. The first of those implications that I think that we need to see of what it means that God is gathering a people into himself 
the promise to us is this, is that in Christ, being gathered into Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins. We need to recognize that the forgiveness that every one of us knows that we need, but both for the things that we have done in this life and the things that we have not done in this life, comes to us only through Jesus Christ. Now, no doubt some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, I know this. This is, uh, you know, this is pretty much uh, basic Sunday school class. And I know that you know this. And I hope you know that I not only know that you know this, that I know this. <laughs> I not only know this, but I teach this. I preach this. One way or another, this message comes in pretty frequently. But I also want to share with you how it works in my own life. See, the reality is I, I tend to relate to God in the same way as that I, I relate to people, even though I know this. What I mean by that is, is this. Now imagine for a moment that I have offended or hurt one of you, or maybe a family member or, or, or a friend someplace. I, I mean, I've sinned against you. Now, when I become aware that I've done that, it, it's my practice, although certainly not perfect in this, but it's my practice then to go and to ask for forgiveness. And you being you, of course, you'll say, of course I forgive you. And so we're good, right? Well, experience tells me it's a little more complicated than that. And I have a lot of experience going and asking for forgiveness and the different degrees of it's a little more complicated than that. So I am somewhat of an expert on this subject. What I understand is because of our brokenness and because of the, the depth of offense that I may have caused, is that while someone may very genuinely express and offer forgiveness, it's going to take some time before things are right again, normal again. There's some amends that I probably need to make so that you can trust that when I said I own forgiveness, I want, I, I am sorry, that, that you need to be able to believe that. There's the hurt, the, the brokenness that you've got to work through, and then each of us is different, and so any offense it hits us in different ways. And then it takes those amends over you know, time. And then it could be a few hours, it could be a few days, it could be a while in, in the course of our lives. Because before I know that we're all right. And we expect that, and we understand that in our relationship with one another. But the problem is, that's not the problem because that's, that's just normal life. But the problem is that I relate to God in that way. So when I know that I have sinned against God, and, and the reality is even by sinning against any of you, I have sinned against God because all sin is against, against God. I go and I ask God for forgiveness. And I know that he's promised forgiveness, and so I know that I'm forgiven. But I don't feel forgiven. And the reality is, is on those circumstances, is even after I've gone through, I've repented, and I've asked God for forgiveness, and I know the promises for forgiveness, I very, very, very much hope that nothing big happens in the next few days. No life-altering decisions need to be made. Nobody, you know, I, I want that time so that I can do some things to show God 
that I really want that forgiveness, that I, I deserve that forgiveness. I, I treat God as if he is as frail and broken as I am or you are. And in so doing, I do not embrace the promises that he's made. I treat him as if he follows our pattern, not that we are called to follow his pattern. And as a result, I continue to feel guilt. Now, this may not be your problem. You may not struggle with this at all. In fact, nobody, it may be that nobody else in this room struggles with this, but I, I do know this. I'm not the only one who struggles with this. And the reason I know that is because Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.9, listen to what he says here. For whoever lacks, and then he talks about certain qualities, talking about you know, fruit in their lives, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, what Peter is saying here is that there are people, and there were people in his day, that their lives were not, they were not growing spiritually. They were not growing in grace, growing in godliness. Because they were still feeling the weight of their guilt. And Peter says, it's, it's like you're blind. You don't know the truth when you see it. You have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your sin. And, and the fact that Peter's writing that to others indicates that I'm not the only one who has this problem. In fact, the, the, the fact that God recorded it so that it could be read for every other generation tells me I'm in pretty good company in a sense of lots of people have my problem. That when we know that we are forgiven and yet we relate to God as if somehow we need to earn the forgiveness of our sin. But here's the promise of the gospel again so that we can hang on and bite into it deeply. We, we see it demonstrated here in, in our text. It's better that one should die so that others. In other words, one died in our place. And the whole purpose of him dying, the reason for him dying is he died with the weight of our sin upon him. He took our sin. He has died with my sin, with your sin. So I don't bear the weight of it anymore. That, that part is true. And the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Romans tells us this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we see that phrase again, in Christ. Same idea, union with Christ. Something is happening, not just that we're part of a team, but somehow we are mystically connected and in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on as he's writing in Romans and said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, there wasn't anything that we did to get up to it to earn the forgiveness. It's God's love that pours out forgiveness and made a way to be forgiven. And he was delivered over to death for our sins. And yet he was raised to life for our justification. And that is an important picture because there's two dimensions that are taking place that I'm going to touch on in a moment as, as, we, as we look on this. But what we need to recognize is this, is that when Jesus died, our debt was paid in full. And to act like I am inclined to do, that many do, as if we somehow need to earn it back or pay back to restore that relationship is about as sensible as continuing to pay your mortgage or your college loans after they have been paid off in full. 
there's nothing more to pay. And so the first implication, the foundational implication for our lives that is accomplished by the fact that one died, but he died for a purpose, and that purpose was to gather a people from everywhere into one, into himself. Is that in him, we are forgiven of our sins. There's nothing more to pay. Related to that, however, is the second implication. And the second implication is this, is in Christ, we are freed from the bondage of our sin. And those are not the same thing. See, knowing that I have a debt is one thing, but when, you know, maybe put it this way, many of you have a mortgage. Hopefully you have a mortgage as well within your ability to pay, within your, within your salary structure, all that kind of stuff. You know, you've got to pay the debt. But some people have a mortgage that is such that it owns them. It dictates the way they live their life fully because they have nothing else. It demands. The creditors are calling constantly. And so their debt is dictating. They are enslaved to their debt. The scripture uses both images. There is a, a debt that we have because of our sin, but there's also, we're told, sin itself is not just a debt that needs to be negotiated away. It owns us. It is, we are our slaves to that. And yet the promise that is ours when we are in Christ is that we are freed from the bondage of sin. And if we fail to grasp that point, that we are free in Christ from our bondage to sin, then our experience of this life will be marked by frustration and disappointment. And so what I want to do here is, is work through this and hope that this makes sense. It's, it is theological, but I want to make it practical because ultimately it's very important. We, we need to know what it means to be free. And you need to be convinced that you have been freed if you are in Christ. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that our, our fundamental problem is, is not the sins that we commit, but rather the, the sinful nature that we inherited in our birth. Our, our sins are essentially symptoms of the condition. You have something and then you have a marking on your, you know, Chicken pox mean that you have a virus. The virus is there whether you see that. But our sins are the expression of the condition that we were born into. And Paul elaborates on that when he says this in, in Romans 5.12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. And, and so Paul's helping us understand the, 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 where, why we sin. And why we sin is because we were born into it. We were born into the family. Paul says that we were born into the family of Adam. Adam was the one who introduced sin. Adam was the one who sinned. We just follow the family plan. It's just part of our DNA. It doesn't mitigate the fact that we do sin, but it explains where that sin comes from. And it's very important that we get this because many of us have this idea in our head, even if we understand it otherwise. We think that we are sinners because we sin when that's the exact opposite of what God is telling us in the scriptures. He's telling us we sin because by nature we are sinners. And understanding that concept is important. It seems like we're getting further and further uh, into bondage, but the reality is understanding that is also the necessity, the key to being freed from the bondage that sin has uh, over us. And so what we need to understand then is we have that nature because we're born into this family of man of whom Adam is the head and therefore we all share this. 
And maybe put it in another way to, to kind of remove some of the, the theological and make it a little more practical, uh, uh, but still with the same principle. My children did not become members of the Griffith family because they had certain characteristics that over time they, they saw and they noticed they were similar to the other Griffiths. And so they thought to themselves at some point, you know, looking around, I think I'd be comfortable with this. My characteristics seem to fit there. And so they applied for membership into the Griffith clan. They have those characteristics because they were born into the Griffith clan. They have the characteristics for better and for worse. And we understand that. And scripturally speaking, it's the same thing. We were born into Adam's clan. And therefore, we share the characteristics that he had. The better, being created after the image of God, and the worse. The sin, the rebellion, the brokenness, the dysfunction, the fear. That's characteristic of our life, and, and that's the reason for it. That is, in one sense, bad news, but the whole point of Romans 5 is so that Paul would say, okay, here's where it's been. And then he explains to us God's remedy to our circumstance. And what we need to see is this, is that God's answer to the brokenness of our inheritance is not to give us some instructions so we can improve ourselves, but to send a second Adam, Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for our sins. He's the one who is gathering people into one, but Jesus has come to be second. And then those who believe are told that we are both adopted and born into him. We're born into his family. And therefore, just as we originally carried on with the characteristics of our first family, now through faith, we actually have been transferred into one who is perfect, one who has died for our sins, one who has died for our sins, died to set us free. We are now in him, and we are able to now die to our sin, is what the language of Scripture uses, because we are in him. Paul says in Romans 5.19, for just as... Through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, the one who died for us, many will be made righteous. And then for chapter 6, he goes on and he uses language of being baptized into the death of Christ. And there's something that is mystical that takes place when we are baptized into the death of Christ that brings us into union with Christ to such an extent that we are one. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, something familiar for many of you, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I do live, I live in him, through him. And so language that is saying there's somehow we are in union with, we are directly connected with Christ. And, and the scriptures tell us that because by faith we are in union with Christ, therefore when Jesus died, we died as well. When he died for our sin, our sins died. And something radically changed. A man named Watchman Nee, who was a leader of the Chinese church in the early to the mid part of the 20th century, he was actually the, the one who began the, the Chinese house church movement, which God blessed in, in ways that we could have never imagined. wrote this, the old life ended at the cross. Our new life began at the resurrection. See, when we are now in Christ, we experienced 
in one sense vicariously, but more than vicariously, mystically with him, what he experienced. If you want me to explain it more deeply, you have to wait a while because I have absolutely no idea how to go much deeper than that. But we're just told this is just what the scripture is teaching me. I'm going to go real simple here. This is, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible. So this is, this is my version of that right now. But we're told, and the imagery over and over and over again is that by faith we are in union with Christ and that through his death we died, but through his resurrection we were made alive into an entirely new life. Entirely new possibility that we now carry his DNA. But the problem is many of us remember our old life. And we've been conditioned to that. And because our experience is going to continue to ascend, and, and we will in some way or another continue to be affected by that in this life. But there is a significant difference. Is when we die to sin, we no longer belong to sin. And so previously, when we were in the family of Adam, we didn't have a choice but to sin. Even if we chose to do what is good, it was in one sense still sin. It was just... You know, choose door number one, door number two, door number three. It didn't matter. It was all going to be sin. Now when we are faced with any temptation, any trial, we have the opportunity to choose, and we do not have to choose, and we're told which one is sin and which one is not, and we have the ability to choose the one that is not sin. The game has changed. But we don't necessarily believe that because we're conditioned by our past life and our own failures and frustrations and any number of things. But what we're challenged to do with the whole imagery of being in Christ, it's promised to be set free, is to recognize that in Christ the barrier has been broken. And so once the barrier has been broken and we realize that it can be done, we now have the ability and the power to say no to sin. Sometime this week I was flipping through some channels and I, I saw, I don't know if it was ESPN or ESPN2 or ESPN8 or, you know, was it the, the old Ocho and, you know, that's uh, for those of you who like bad old movies. Um, but it was a, a, a relatively short feature on, on Roger Bannister. Some of you may recognize that name. He was a, um, a pioneering a, a, um, distance runner in the uh, 1950s. In fact, in 1954, he was the first man to break the four-minute barrier in the mile. Up to that point, it was considered to be impossible to do. People were pretty close to it. But nobody had broken that barrier, so it was widely believed that it was impossible to break that barrier. In fact, some medical professionals said that the human body was incapable of doing that. And if, the, if, we, if somebody tried to maintain the pace that was necessary to break the four-minute mile for long enough, which I assume is four minutes or less, but, um, <laughs> but if you kept that pace as long as it was necessary to break the four-minute mile that our hearts would explode. Now, if you were a good runner and you believe that, I can get there. I'm at four minutes and three seconds, but if I run one second faster per lap, my heart's going to explode. I'm not sure the motive is really there. <laughs> Until Roger Bannister broke the barrier. What was impossible was then done 36 more times within the next year. And maybe it's a stretch, but it's still a good story, but maybe it's a stretch. But there's something in Christ and understanding that our old life died at the cross. The new life rose at the resurrection 
and Christ has broken the bondage to sin, and we now know, because we are in him, that we too can say no to sin. It's been broken, and since he broke it, anyone who belongs to him can say no to sin. We are set free. We are no longer enslaved to it. We are no longer in bondage. And the degree to which we understand and believe this, we walk in freedom. We choose wisely. We walk in freedom. Finally, and I'm only going to touch on this very briefly, the implication, which is probably the most clear, even what John was saying here, is that not only in Christ are we forgiven our sin, not only in Christ are we freed from the bondage of our sin, but in Christ we are reconciled to God and to one another. Isn't that what he's saying? When one died, because that's the best thing, so that others might live. And John says, and it's not just dying for the nations. They were only concerned about that particular nation, but it's dying for the nations, all the peoples that are called from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on the face of the earth and every generation that God was bringing them together as one in Christ. This is the purpose for which Jesus died, that in Christ God has gathered all his disparate and scattered people. And they gather us into him as one body. And if God is willing to say once and for all that sin is dealt with, it's been removed. And we are reconciled and made one. How can we refuse? the same radical unity with one another? How can we remain divided over comparatively trivial things like politics, social status, economic ability, gender, race, ethnicity. And we need to be asking ourselves, is there anyone with whom I am not willing to be in union? And if the answer to that is yes, and I guess is for all of us at some point or another, the answer is yes. It drives us back to say, Lord, forgive me. And we go back to the beginning again. We are forgiven and we are empowered to say no. We can be made whole. But we need to deal with that. Is there anyone you are unwilling and feel unable to forgive if they seek it? And again, we, we've got to deal with that. Because the purpose of God is to bring together one body. And if we rub each other the wrong way, we have great opportunities for forgiveness to demonstrate what Christ is doing in us. Not when we all stay far enough away from one another that nobody can bother us. But when we get close another, enough to annoy and to hurt one another to give and to receive the forgiveness that Christ has secured to make us the one.